You're listening to the Coffee Clatch Crew podcast with your hosts, Jason and Christina. Consider it your digital water cooler. I do hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew The Stand book review. I'm Christina Lomangino, and I'll be joined one last time soon by my amazing panel of guests to help me finish discussing this epic Stephen King novel. If you missed our first two episodes, we are reviewing this book in three podcasts, one for each section of the book. So make sure you go back and take a look at our review on book one, Captain Trips, and book two, On the Border. Today, we'll be finishing with book three, The Stand. As we mentioned last time, don't worry if you've never read the novel. You don't need to be following along, and this can be a fun way for you to just learn more information about this incredible story. However, it's important that you know we will be talking all things The Stand from the novel, the 94 miniseries, the 2020 show, and our thoughts on this tale in general. In book three, the Boulder Free Zone's three spies take their stand against Randall Flagg. Stu, Larry, Glenn, and Ralph start their walk. One is left behind, and the others continue their journey to Vegas. Each section of characters takes their stand, and the story culminates in the larger battle of good versus evil. This time, we'll look at each of our groups as they separate more fully into two sides and what the ultimate showdown looks like. We'll also discuss our larger thoughts on the bigger king themes of religion, faith, feminism, and more. We'll give our final ratings and say which version we prefer, the book, the 94, or the 2020. So with that, I'm happy to welcome back for our last conversation, Kirk. Hey, guys. Brian. Hello. And Michelle. Hello. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you. Are you sick of talking about this story yet? (laughs) Hey, I'm just getting into it. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we still have so much to say that we didn't cover with our first two episodes. So we're going to try to get it all in here today. But before we begin, I just want to come back to one of our Clatcher's comments. Jason J. mentioned, you talk about Harold as if he's a major character in book one, but actually his name isn't even mentioned until almost 300 pages in. We have multiple chapters with Stu, Fran, Lloyd, Larry, and Nick before the reader even knows Harold exists. So actually, that's a good point. I never went and looked at how long the story went on before we get to Harold. He feels so pivotal once he's introduced that you kind of think he's always been there. The thing is, 300 pages sounds like a lot, but book two actually doesn't begin until page 480. So you still have quite a few chapters with Harold. He's introduced in chapter 28. And I think the reason I still remember him so much from book one is those are the major chapters of him with Franny, then leaving for the CDC and meeting Stu for the first time. And if you think about it, he's kind of a big character. He does do a lot of things in further books. So it makes sense that he's brought up in book one. When we started our first cast here uh, for the stand, the the book, you know, we kind of needed to talk about him as as a large character to help set the scene, talk about the duality of between different characters that he's paired up against. So yeah, it makes sense. But yeah, I mean... If we had talked about everyone when they came into the book, we'd probably still be talking about book one right now. (laughs) Well, and there's something different about those chapters of seeing him with Franny first before everyone else starts to arrive because you really do get the first shift in Harold, I think, once we start to see other people interrupting his idea that we've discussed that this could be a new chance for him, the end of the world. So it's a different psychological process, I think. Anyway, let's dive into our last plot points that we have from book three, starting off with the spies. 
we see that the judge takes a stand against Flagg's men but is killed. Flagg is enraged that his men didn't take him alive as ordered. Dana is also discovered in Vegas and taken to Flagg, but she kills herself before he can get any information from her. This combined with the fact that Flagg can't see the third spy, Tom, enrages him, making him feel like it's all falling apart. Julie tells Lloyd about Tom, but before he can warn Flag, Tom escapes into the desert. So we have all of our experiences with the spies. I know that in our talk about the 2020, it was my feeling that while it seems they didn't get to accomplish much as far as what the Boulder Free Zone intended for them to bring back information, I think their real purpose was to shake Flag's confidence that it's the first time he really feels he doesn't have a handle on things. How did you guys take those sections and the purpose of the spies? I agree with that. You know, first I was kind of questioning, well, especially after you get to the end of the book, like, what was the point of those spies anyway? You know, this, you know, let's send three people over there to get killed. It's like, well, that's a good idea. You know, they, they didn't move the story one direction or the other, except like you mentioned that that sort of brought early on where um, Flag begins to sort of question like, well, wait a minute, how come I didn't know about this third spy? Well, wait a minute, how come Dana got out the window and I didn't know about that? I knew about the banana. He said, that's an easy one. But I didn't know she was going to go jump out the window, you know. What was interesting is that at about the same time that he was questioning himself, I mean, it was only about two or three pages later, I think, that the people around him began to question him too, which was, I remember thinking like, boy, that was fast. But it's funny, like Lloyd and some of those other folks picked up on that right away. You know, as soon as he became a little unsure, you know, as soon as Dana went out the window, then the, then his inner circle were starting to question, is this guy all together now? I thought that was pretty interesting and pretty fast. Yeah, I really loved Dana's stuff in particular from the books. You really got such a better look at what she was doing, how she had managed to infiltrate this inner circle of getting close to Lloyd and sort of getting to flag in the way that he couldn't get the information about the third spy. We didn't get quite as much of that in the TV adaptations, but what I did love from the 2020 is when Flag confronts Bobby Terry and winds up killing him in the elevator, this really savage sequence. I think in the 2020 version, it's the first time we really get to see Flag's violence and how scary he is. Do you remember how he killed him in the book? Don't we just hear that he tells us there was something worse and it was teeth? Yeah. That's how that chapter ended, I thought. That's a lot more sort of like um, chilling than throwing blood around in an elevator, you know. It's like, you don't know, did he eat him? Did he just like kill him like a dog would? Just kind of tear him apart or what? But yeah, I thought when it ended on that simple sentence, you know, that said, next chapter, we're like, whoa. Yes, and (laughs) I, I think, you know, King is sometimes criticized that he can get a little overly long and flowery and descriptive in places where he doesn't need to. But when he shows restraint like that, it can be chilling. Yeah, that line was. I think the spies were an interesting plot device, if you will. Because up until this point, you you see Flag amassing power and having a lot of influence over everybody. So like you were saying, Christina, the, the spies were really the first time where that starts to falter and show some cracks in the armor, if you will, for Flag to show that they're, he's not all as powerful as we thought he was, and that there might be a chance that at the end of the book, the stand against 
the darkness or him uh, would succeed. One of my favorite parts in particular from the books, and we don't really get this in either adaptation, was when the judge is alone in the hotel room and Flag shows up as a crow outside of the window and he's thinking to himself, maybe he could shoot him. Maybe it could all be that easy if he was fast enough to raise the gun. And he actually does get it up and goes to shoot until he realizes he has the safety on. But it was just such good tension building. And it did make you think all these thoughts I hadn't wondered about before. If he's in animal form, can he be killed? Is that different? We never really know the full extent of his powers. And we're not really going to, even by the end, we'll talk about the coda later, we do get some more information, but I like that it's still a bit ambiguous. We don't know entirely what flag is. You know, I had uh, something I was going to bring up later, but now that we're talking about that, pretty, I don't know if you guys noticed, but that whole scene with him in the in the hotel room, do you guys remember Edgar Allan Poe poem called The Raven? Mm-hmm. That sound familiar? Mm-hmm. So this scene is a total... Well, you can call it an homage or you can call it a ripoff of that scene. And so so I have a couple notes that will kind of make it go a little bit more coherently. But so I've got in this chapter, we have crow flag tapping on the window, tap, 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 like the raven had flown in to roost on the bust of palace and posed 1845 raven. And the judge is wondering out loud a few questions. So I'll kind of read those. The judge wonders, well, I found out the things that um, that they need to know back in the free zone that seems so far away. Nevermore, says the crow. Will I get any idea what chinks there might be in the dark man's armor? Nevermore, says the crow. Will I get back safely? Nevermore, says the crow. Tap, 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 the crow looking at him, seeming to grin. So what I've got is that's taken directly from this poem. And what what happens in the poem is that this guy is sort of on his own. He's sort of descending into madness kind of got a couple of verses that I thought sort of set the whole thing up. You could see uh, um, King did is directly from this poem. So here's like the first verse of the poem. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over a many quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore. While I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. To some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door, only this and nothing more. Then he goes on a few more verses and, the, and he's like talking to his raven and he has a talking raven and he's talking to the raven and the raven's making him crazy because the raven keeps answering nevermore, you know, to his questions. And so the guys get crazier. And finally about halfway through the poem, he says, prophet said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempt, tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted, on this deserted land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me, truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore, quoth the raven, nevermore. And then there's kind of some more of this going on. And finally, the, the protagonist descends into darkness in the last verse is, and the raven never flitting, still a sitting, still a sitting, on the pallid bust of palace just above my chamber door, and his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws a shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. So the gist of the story is like 
in the middle of this dreary, damp night, this raven comes, taps on his door and drives him sort of like into madness, right? He ends up saying, you're a bird, but you're a devil, you know, and he sort of like plays out that whole point and the raven keeps saying nevermore. And at the very end, he, um, the raven ends up taking this guy's soul. Shall I be lifted? And the, and the raven says nevermore. So, I mean, not directly word for word, but I mean, it's, it really, really is fairly close to that scene in the hotel room I thought was really interesting. Yeah, as you were reading it, I was thinking to myself, I, I don't think King steals when he does this with other major works. I think what he's doing is a perfect, just by that little call out, by having the bird say nevermore. You're so familiar with this story, at least a lot of us are from Poe, that you don't have to give any more information. He doesn't have to tell us anything else. We immediately know all of the background and sort of what's going on with this crow and what it's trying to do to the judge. And I think that's a great shorthand for us as readers to get to that point. Exactly. I mean, it, it, I think he's like paying homage to some of the old school horror writers, you know, or they, I guess they call, they call this gothic horror back in the day in a very complimentary way. I mean, I don't look at it as plagiarism, you know, because it'd be way too obvious if he was trying to plagiarize. And, you know, I think King even does that with himself. And I don't know what we think about it. To me, I like it. I don't find it uh, obnoxious or whatever, but in other books, sometimes he will make a little callback uh, through the use of certain words or phrases that he said before as his own shorthand, almost that you know what a character is about because he uses a specific word to describe them or to reference them. And mm-hmm. I, I find it very effective. Coming back to the spies for just one more second, what do we think about? Tom and Tom's escape, because that's an area we haven't really talked about. I think it's clear with Dana and the judge, I really love that from the beginning, they sort of know their purpose and they're okay with it. I think they're both aware that the mission is probably going to end in their deaths and they just want to be able to have an impact, which they both do. But the situation is very different with Tom. He does follow the instructions he's been given and he gets out on time. Uh, during the full moon, without Flag being able to see him and starts his journey off through the desert. Not talking about once he gets to Stu, but what do we think about Tom's journey through Vegas in general? Did they ever explain why exactly Flag couldn't see Tom? That's the million-dollar question. I think they make a couple of hints, and you all can tell me where you fall on this. Number one, it could be that Tom has this purity of spirit, purity of mind, and that's where King is criticized a little bit. It's funny, I wondered that same question, and I came up with an idea. I'm not sure how solid it is, but he had that of Tom, but he also had that of Trashcan. He couldn't get a beat on Trashcan either. You know, in the book, it seems like those two characters were sort of further on the continuum of free will. Some of the other people, Harold, Nadine, were sort of in the middle. They could be pulled one way, they could be pulled the other way. But Trashcan and Tom, I mean, Tom had free will just because he just, that's what was him. He just did what he wanted. You know, he had that childlike impulsiveness. Trashcan had free will just because he did what he wanted to do his whole life. You know, that he never got drug into any, um, anybody else's sort of storylines. So I wondered if it had something to do with free will. If someone has total free will, then Flag doesn't have much, as much control over them. I don't know. That's the best I could do, though, when I was re- getting through the. That was a good thought. I think I wondered 
if Tom was protected by God or by whatever this quote-unquote good force was that he was going to be shielded from Flag's view, he was going to make it through his journey? Could there also have been a little bit of the shine in Mm -hmm. Tom? When you guys were doing the TV review, you talked about how the kid in the show had a little bit of the shine or there was some in the book as well. So Tom could have had a little bit of the shine, but it could have also been maybe the hypnosis that he was under since it wasn't Tom's voice at that point. It was the other leaders. It kind of jumbled things up for Flag that you couldn't, he couldn't penetrate that part of it. So that kind of shielded him a little bit as well. So how would you explain trash can? Trauma? Well, I'm going to say I brought this up in the, the 2020 as an alternative thought that the other spies are actively thinking about the purpose, thinking about the information. It's going through their minds all the time. Maybe he's able to read that, whereas Tom is not thinking about that. He's thinking about, I have to leave during the full moon. And Flag says, when I see it, all I see is M-O-O-N. That spells moon. And maybe Mm. the same is going on with the trash can man, that his mind is so chaotic. Even if he goes to read it, he's not quite sure what to latch on to. Like, neither of them have any inner dialogue going on them amongst themselves. It's just what they're doing. They're one track. Everybody else contemplates and projects and worries. And with them, there's, there's none of that. Yeah. Yes. There's more it's of a, a single-minded focus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause in a way, Tom didn't even know he was on a spying mission. <laughs> he just, he just said, well, I'm going where they told me to go and I'm coming back at the full moon. You know, so that's a good point, Christina. Yeah, and let me be clear. I don't mean that at all to say it's a result of Tom's disability. I don't think that it is. And the 2020 even shows us that he's very adept at getting out of that situation in Vegas and how he's going to figure it out to see what the note says to tell him to get away. But I don't think he's actively planning any sort of revolt against Flag the way that Dana and the judge both are. You guys brought up trash. So there's a couple things going on while we're getting a look at the spies. We are also seeing what's going on in Indian Springs. And we haven't talked much about that, but that's the airfield where Flag and his people are trying to start up their operations, get pilots ready that they can fly over Boulder. I think come spring is what they're planning to do. And it's going along pretty well for their sake until trash has a bit of a PTSD episode, I believe. And he winds up setting a bunch of bombs, blowing up the planes, and killing some of the pilots. He really kind of takes out Flag's whole mission there. And the result of that is that Flag, when he finds out, orders that trash be found and killed painlessly, though, if possible. Which is interesting, which goes against his MO from earlier of the, the killing in the, in the elevator. Right, from the TV show. Is that he's, you can tell that Flag has a specific soft spot in his heart for Trash Can. So killing painlessly, I thought, was an interesting view into Flag's character. He was not as, you know, one or two-dimensional. There's an extra additional layer that he can care for somebody if it, you know, benefits him enough, essentially. Um, which I thought was an interesting take. It gives him some human aspects and also shows how he underestimates we mentioned both Tom and Trash because by letting Trash off the hook a bit he's going to allow him to get to the nuclear weapon later which he brings in to ruin all of his plans and there could be some sort of an admiration going on we do see that in the 2020 I don't 
want to get too far into that because I don't love most of Ezra Miller's depiction of trash, but there is the scene where they're first sort of meeting and Trash is showing him how to light the fire that I like because you see Flag's affection for him. Is it affection for him or affection for the part of him that he sees himself in? <laughs> for Talons. Yeah. I think both. I think he does genuinely like Trash and he's, he says a couple of times that he thinks he's sort of a savant when it comes to finding weapons and fire, and he respects that, as twisted as that is. But he also does mention, I thought we'd be able to use him in more or less words for longer than this, but I I guess he's just become too much of a loose cannon. Also during this time, Nadine comes to flag in the desert, and we get what is particularly a rough scene in the books. I am sort of thankful we didn't have to go too far into that in the 2020 but flag impregnates nadine and the experience in the novel results in her going insane pretty much catatonic for a while that is the way it plays out generally in the 94 though they did switch that up a bit in the 2020 and i also kind of like the idea of that in the 2020 she almost experiences a kind of glamour there's a different reality she's seeing than what everyone else is seeing which prevents her, I think, from descending into total catatonia because she doesn't quite realize the full extent of what's going on. So how do you mean that she seemed pretty far descended? Well, in the 2020 version, even after the experience, she's she's seeing something else. She's almost blissful for a while because she thinks that she's pregnant. She's seeing a beautiful image of herself when she looks rather than this sunken figure that almost looks half dead that Larry and the others see and Larry eventually convinces her to look in the mirror and see herself in the 2020 version and she realizes oh is that really what's going on and it it shocks her pretty bad and I think ultimately leads to her decision there when she's about to give birth to take her stand against flag okay I see so it's like her vision of her, her view of herself Yeah, it almost puts a glamour over her. Instead of in the books, she really just snaps uh, after the experience with him in the desert, and she's non-responsive for a long time. I think this is one of the areas that the 2020 show did better than the book. When I was re-listening to the book for for this week's podcast, when I got to this part, I was like, you know, this is this good (laughs) for Nadine? (laughs) Right? It seemed like a letdown. After watching 2020 and, you know, the general theme of the show and the book is where does insert person's name here? Where did they take their stand? Where do they feel that they need to be the one to, you know, put their stake in the ground and say, this is what, this is the type of person that I am. So with Nadine being the one to to get past the glamour and then herself jump out the window was pretty telling and pretty powerful from a character development perspective for Nadine to really say, you know, I've been waiting for you for how many ever years, but now I've decided, nope, I'm going to be my own person. And the book was just kind of a letdown after watching that. I think it works in the book when it was originally written in that time frame, but we've gotten a lot more powerful women characters since then. So like I said, I think 2020 version did this much better. But then aren't we saying that it's just a matter of when she flipped? Did she flip during the rape or did she flip when she looked in the mirror? 
And to me, it seemed more likely that she would flip during the rape. You know, that would send her off more than like, oh, the rape was fine. Everything's glamorous. What? I looked in the mirror and my makeup's running. I can't stand this. You know, it's like, I don't know. I kind of, I sort of thought it was more realistic for, you know, rape by some monster. I, I do have to say, I, I agree with both of you. It's it's tough for me. You don't want to see that, obviously, on screen because it's so difficult, but you do get a sense in the book of how horrible the experience is, which it would be on, on top of it being a rape. It's a demonic creature that she's really seeing for the first time during that experience, and it, it would shatter someone's mind unless there was some type of magical filter that didn't allow them to really see that, which is, mm-hmm. I think, what the 2020 was doing. But I do think it boils down to basically the same elements of the only stand she could take was to kill herself and to take away Flag's unborn child, uh, which is what she does in all these versions. I guess most people just felt in the 2020 she was a little more empowered to do that um, because it, it sort of goes on and on a bit in the books with Flag well, treating her like a, a rag doll, essentially, which is hard, mm-hmm. hard to read. And it could also just be the medium, right? That it's a lot, I mean, what, how they have to handle it on TV is they can't portray the rape the way it was portrayed in the book. They couldn't even get close to it. So they're going like, well, when is she going to flip then? We'll have her flip when, you know, later on, a little bit later on. The last thing I want to bring up here is en route to Vegas, Harold has an accident on his bike. So we've talked about Nadine, but we didn't talk about what happened with Harold before that. It's very clearly orchestrated by Flag, although Nadine does have more of an active role in it in the 2020. But in all the versions, Harold flies off the road, gruesomely breaking both of his legs, and Nadine leaves him in the ditch where Harold has a little bit of time to contemplate before his death. And he leaves this final note saying, I was misled. I have to say, I agree with most of the commentary that I like the subtle changes of the 2020 where Harold owns up a little bit more to his part of the responsibility. It wasn't just that he was misled. He allowed himself to be brought there. It definitely um, fulfilled his redemption arc. You know, he'd done all these bad things and you could see the path that he was going on in the beginning of being to a place that's just not great. And sure, it took this horrific accident for him to understand the error of his ways. But in the book, it kind of was like he, him crawling back up to the road is kind of like him still holding on to how he was until he realized that, no, this is not where I'm supposed to be. So yeah, in 2020, he can't move. So he has to sit there with his thoughts, you know, as painful as him sitting there is. So he helped, I think that helped get him to the realization, Christine, like you're saying that 2020 did a better version of this. I was happy to see that Harold had a better redemption arc in 2020 than the book. Well, just a slight change of wording in his notes. I allowed myself to be misled instead of I was misled. He's, he's realizing a bit, I think, there. And King's descriptions, though, in the books of what's happening with the injuries to Harold. He is paying for his crimes. It's it's very well, but gross in the description of what's going on with him. It and, makes me wonder, though, would he have come around? Would he have seen the light if it wasn't for that accident? Because they were on their way. They were determined. Was it just because this terrible thing happened? Or does it reaffirm what we were talking about back in book one, 
that he was one of those multiple characters that could have gone either way. To me, the versions all do it a little bit differently because I do get the sense in 2020 that Harold has caught on a little sooner that Flag has chosen Nadine. He's not really the special one. Flag is telling her things and talking to her in a way that he's not with Harold and perhaps he's more of a pawn. I think he was going to be taken out of the picture regardless because Flag never intended him to get very far, but it, it sort of in my mind depends how and where as far as does Harold come to that realization. Yeah. That part where he takes a shot or two at Nady was one of the things that really drove Flag crazy. If you remember when when Flag was at some point, he was kind of sitting by himself out around this fire, I think before he ran, came across Nadine in the desert. And he was sort of listing off the things that signs that he was sort of losing his grip a little bit. And that was one he just kept repeating to himself. If I, if I re- remember him right, he said, I can't believe that he took a shot at her, or that he, he tried to kill her. And that wasn't within Flag's vision at all. And so that was kind of a note to himself, like, man, I'm really losing it here. He didn't even see that. Which how could you not? anticipate that it also feels like he underestimates Harold in some ways and he sees the main purpose of him as getting Nadine close enough to him where I think he could have used Harold a lot more than he actually did yeah but that's what he was saying I mean he was upset about that whole sort of little scene the way it played out because it indicated to him that he really was losing his power the power of his third eye well so let's talk about what's been going on with our other group because Stu, Larry, Glenn, and Ralph head off on their journey to Vegas to confront Flag, but on the way, Stu breaks his leg. This one will fall by the way, we find out, isn't just somebody's going to die, one is going to get separated. After going down the ravine, the group is forced to leave Stu behind, which they agree to reluctantly, but they leave Kojak behind and continue along. It isn't long before the other three encounter Flag's men who take them prisoner and bring them into Vegas. When Glenn rejects an opportunity to be spared if he kneels and begs Flag, he does not, and he's shot by Lloyd on Flag's orders. Any thoughts so, on what's going on with the group here? This is going to seem really bad. Who's Ralph? Uh, Ralph is Ray. Yeah, I, I got that, but it's just like, I don't... What's his point? Yeah, what's the point? Yeah. Well, you I know? Was, I was kind of wondering this, too, back to like when we were talking about, you know, what's the point of the spies? It's like, what's the point of these four people walking to Vegas to get killed? You know, but. I see. I think those are a bunch of different questions, though. I I do agree. This is the age old. What is Ralph doing as one of these selected ones is the first thing Brian is bringing up. And I do think that is more of a hole in the writing than something that King intended. I think he talks often about how he got stuck in the book to what's going on in the politics in Boulder and sort of the way to get him out of that writing trap was he needed something big. That's when he decided on the explosion and killing Nick. And I think he always intended for him to be the one to go on the journey and sort of didn't know what else to do. So, okay, we got Ralph here. Let's have Ralph be one of the ones <laughs> to go on the walk. I think that was just a problematic writing piece. He just okay. needed someone expendable. Makes a lot more sense. Yeah, but the second point, which Jay brought up a lot in our conversations, is why does this group need to go on this walk to what we know is inevitably their death? And I don't know, what are your thoughts about that? Well, let's let's leave your, let's use your criteria, um, the CKC criteria, 
did it move the story anywhere? I think it is pivotal. This starts to get into the conversations about religion and faith, which are a major underpinning to this book. And I talked in the 2020 that the characters themselves liken it to a spiritual cleansing, that they are not ready to make the type of stand in faith terms that they need to. They first need to cleanse themselves physically, to leave everything behind, and then mentally to sort of clear out. So by the time they get to Vegas, they understand their purpose, and their purpose is just to go up against Flag, basically to strip him of that last little bit of power, which I know Jay rebels against because it's sort of the good side always makes their people do this stuff that doesn't make a lot of sense. Why do they need to die? But I do think that was all very purposeful on King's part to get to this point of what happens once they're in Vegas. But it did seem like they set off on their walk out of their own motivations. You know, like you were saying, their motivations to cleanse themselves. They went just because Mother A told them to go. And they're like, okay, well, lock arms, here we go. You know, it didn't seem, I didn't feel like when they set off on their journey that they were sort of cheerleaders for this cleansing. You know, they were just going because they were told to go. I mean, that's kind of the way that I pulled it out of the story anyway. So I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I mean, if you think about moving the story, when they finally got there, I think they were motivations for the crowd to begin to lose its faith and flag somewhat. So I will agree they played that role, but that was the only sort of movement in the story. That, and maybe that's significant. I'm not sure. It seems like they could have stayed home in Boulder and perhaps moved the story different, maybe in a different direction, but maybe more so. Well, I'll open this up to you guys in a minute. I just want to say, I think you're right. I think when they left, they didn't really understand the purpose. They were taking it a bit on blind faith. They say a couple of times, the whole point of this is we trust what Mother Abigail is telling us. So we have right. to go along or it doesn't make any sense. But the way that the spies standing up against Flag starts to slowly chip away at the power he has, the control, um, everybody else really believing in him, I think this was the bigger push. They had to go there and show, we're, we're not afraid of you. You're not everything you think you are and get the crowd to see kind of something similar too to really take it away from Flag. I, I do think that was a necessary part of that. With the spies coming on and cracking the armor, this is the the walk outside of the spiritual reconciliation and understanding what you know, what their role is. The people walking there is really kind of like breaking open even or cracking open the armor even more to show how weak Flag can be to help propel that part of the story forward. Um, so yeah, I think not only, like I said, do you have the, the spiritual reconciliation of the people going there and saying, okay, we are going to be ready to do this. We do have blind faith in Mother Abigail or anybody else that's leading us and what our roles are supposed to be in life, but also showing to the to the crowd of like, hey, Flag's not that great. You know, and if you keep going down this path that they had stayed in Boulder, they probably would have had something happen to them in the spring. So it shows the crowd. It's like, here's the road you're on. You don't need to go down that road. Let's let's make a stand collectively as a group against this entity and make it so that it's uh, something that we could all be proud of, regardless of whatever happens to us. Yeah, makes sense. And they, it's not like they took a stand that they went out there to fight Flag, but more to expose him, I guess, is what you're saying. And so they were definitely successful at that. 
I, I almost see it too. Like they, they turned Flag's followers both and Flag himself against himself because there's a little bit of questioning and I know I'm jumping forward here, but when the moment comes and they're about to be executed, it's Flag who lashes out and tries to get a handle on his followers <laughs> who are revolting. I think it's Barry Dorgan who stands up and says something someone does in the crowd. Hey, this is not we, what we do, people. Why are we doing this? We're, we're just going to kill these people and watch? And he starts realizing that it's wrong. Flag tries to silence him. He starts sparking off his own electricity. And so there's been a lot of questioning. Yes, the hand of God does come down to pick up this nuclear explosive, but is it also in part because of Flag's electricity that it gets set off. So is that a necessary part of Flag's plan backfiring on itself? And I don't know. I think you could take that either way, really. But that kind of does jump forward to the fact that Flag has gathered his entire Vegas collective to witness this execution of Ralph and Larry, because as we mentioned, we lose Glenn earlier when he takes his stand against Flag. So it is just these two who are brought to the execution. In the books, they're going to be torn apart. So even more vicious than the 2020 where they're going to be drowned. But before all of that can take place, Trashcan arrives with his nuclear warhead that he found to try to redeem himself to Flag for what he messed up at Indian Springs. He starts riding in, but before any of that can happen, a giant glowing hand, the hand of God, descends and detonates the bomb, destroying Flag's followers, the prisoners, everyone alike. There is a great piece of writing there where King says, Silent white light filled the world and the righteous and unrighteous alike were consumed in that holy fire. So very Old Testament mm-hmm. retribution, if you will. And I think a lot of this second part that people grapple with the religion aspect feels very much like that to me, especially in the 2020, where we have righteous lightning really just <laughs> targeting and violently killing people. And I, visually, I did love that scene in the 2020 as well. I thought it was better than, you know, the wonky graphics of the 94 Hand of God, which I don't think anybody liked. That was so bad. <laughs> it, was so, it was so bad. In their defense, I don't know with the limited budget and CGI being what it was, how they could have done that better. But I kept saying, well, you just don't show it then, right? Maybe just yeah. have a bright light or something. But what I did like about the 94 is the way we see Larry and Ralph leading up to that, finally being able to cast off their fear and, you know, saying it's Flag who's going down and he doesn't even realize it. There's just some moving acting for me there leading up to their deaths. Well, how did that compare for you, Christina, to the 2020? Because with Ray and Larry being in the pool, they kind of went through that as well. You know, they reconciled their future and what was going to happen. And really, once they started praying or saying whatever they were saying, uh, really kind of reconciled and put their whole like faith in what they were supposed to be doing and just completely succumbed to it. So I'd be curious, because I know you mentioned that you liked, I think you liked, you said you liked it in the episode review. Be curious to see how you feel that that dichotomy between the two was depicted. I did, I did like both versions of that in their own way. I think the biggest problem, like with everything in the 2020 is, we just don't have as much of a connection to Ray and Larry. So 
their first desperation and then switch to courage and faith, it didn't quite hit me as much as the way I was connecting to those two characters in the 94. There was nothing wrong with the writing or the sequencing. It's just everything that came before it, I didn't feel as emotionally invested in them. Okay, makes sense. What I did love from the 2020 is they make it even less ambiguous a little bit as we were bringing up with Trash. Is he just this neutral agent? Could he gone either way? Was he never really Flags Man? Because in the moment where the electricity starts and it, it starts filling up the room, in the 2020 Trash, who has been saying my life for you towards Flag the entire time, now looks up towards what we believe is God or some greater being and says, my life for you. Uh, almost switching allegiance where they left that a little bit more open-ended, I think, in the book in the 94. I don't know. What did you guys think? How did you take those final moments for Trash? The same thing that you did, at least in the 2020 version, that Trash Can did switch his allegiance at the end. But I just kind of thought that he was always sort of seeking sort of the stronger leader. I mean, he definitely needed to be led and accepted and all those things that we talked about last time. And it seemed like you know, God just came in and took took priority or took, took took over that spot. I don't think it came out that clear or at all in the book, did it? I don't recall that switch of allegiance. Well, something very interesting was happening in the books here. They don't directly state anything about allegiance, but as Flag is losing that power, when Trash rides in, he starts asking, I think it's Barry or somebody else, where is Flag? I don't see him. Where is he? And he's right there, of course. But it's almost as though because his power is decreased, Trash can't even recognize that he's right there. Oh. Um, but then they, they kind of leave it at that. They don't say anything about my life for you or, or um, yeah. you know, then the explosion happens. Yeah, no, I didn't pick that up, that last part that you just said about, about the recognition or lack of recognition. But they always have him just sort of being this wild card, I guess, that yeah. nobody has counted on. I kind of see Trash in the 2020, kind of like how I see Nadine in 2020, like, like I was talking earlier about comparing them to the book. I think it's a much better ending for Trash. It's not as ambiguous like you were saying, um, and they pun intended here, definitely took a stand on where Trash was supposed to end up. So I think it's better, and I think it is just a better ending for the character in, in the 2020 TV show. I agree. And I think where I started out really hating everything happening in Vegas in the 2020, I wound up liking the way all of that ended. It really wasn't until uh, the miss of the journey with Stu and Tom and then the new coda that I got a little frustrated with the 2020, but I, I did like the way they wrapped things up with that. All right, well, we got something else big to discuss, which I am happy about because the adaptations don't often give us a lot of this, and it's some of my favorite parts. We go back to what's happening with Stu, who's been left behind, and it seems to his death, based on the fact that not only are his legs broken, he's stuck in a ravine, he is now also developing pneumonia. He's outside with the elements and would certainly have died if it weren't for Kojak, who is able to get him sticks to make a fire, get him food, and in fact help him to get up and out of the ravine in time to see the result of the nuclear explosion. And he is found near death by Tom returning on his journey. 
Tom is able to help him get to a car, and they then travel to a hotel where he can rest up, though he is still very, very sick. And Tom manages to go to the pharmacy and find antibiotics with the help of Nick, who is guiding him through his presence and his spirit. So I want to stop there because we don't actually get to see Nick come back in any of these versions and see what you guys think about that. Did you like it? Did you find it a little cheesy? Um, Well, I mean, to me, it seemed like at first it seemed like it was a little too convenient. But then, you know, I sort of took the greater scope of the book and thought, well, where do you draw the line on? Like, wait, this is too supernatural for me. You know, I mean, it's like once you buy into the book, you buy into it. And so if something happens, it seems like, well, that was awful convenient. Then, you know, I mean, you've got to go along with that because just because it's part of the part of the deal. I mean, then the next thing, if you don't buy into that, then then you define you don't buy into an 80 pound dog pulling a 200 pound man out of a ravine. And then it just goes downhill from there, you know. <laughs> Things got so, muddy for me here, too, because, Christina, you and I discussed this. The way that I read it was kind of like he broke his leg and they gave up really quick. I feel like as a group, there were some things they could have done, braced the leg, brought him, you know, somewhere safe and kind of let him recover there. But I know that you were saying the greater point was that they were on this mission for Mother Abigail and that that's how they believed it was supposed to go. But I also kind of feel like he just got all the accolades of going on this mission and everybody else got killed except for him. He got to go home and... uh. (laughs) to his wife and his baby and everything was great for him. But also the fact that they hadn't waited for Tom to get back to go on the journey. He hadn't even been home. If they were supposed to be spying and bringing back some sort of message, then why was it that their paths were crossing? I think that our group, it's a good question. Our group had to sort of give up on the fact that the whole spy mission was their idea. It was the, the politics and the, the human way of doing things that they were trying to figure out. How do we rebuild society? Now there's a threat from flags. So what do we do to get more information on that and combat it? Let's send the spies. When Mother Abigail is trying to tell them, this is not your purpose, you're losing sight of the main goal, which is that God or this higher being has a message. The time in Boulder is really just to send you further along to finish taking your stand. It's not to rebuild a society yet. And so when she comes back from her near-death experience with the final message of, okay, this is what God wants you to do. He wants you to go on this walk. They have to give up on the spy plan as well. Hopefully not Tom. I think they're hoping he'll come back, but that they don't really have control over that, that that's what they're supposed to be doing is going on the walk. And kind of knowing that it it will probably lead to their deaths as well. And that unfortunately a big part of all this might mean they're all sacrificing their lives, but for a greater good, I suppose. Yeah, and also the idea of spying, if you think about it, wasn't all that naive. Like, oh, these guys thought it'd be cute to go spy or that's all they could about it. That's exact Flag was doing the same thing. He could just do it himself. You know, he could send his third eye out to sort of do all the spying and so... I think spying is kind of a natural thing. If you follow politics today, you see there's a lot of it going on. It's execution probably wasn't all that great. Not even naive, just that they were trying to make human plans. When Mother Abigail is saying, 
really there are bigger godly plans and what you need to do is just follow along with that mission instead of trying to perpetuate your own mission and that you can't really ever understand it. And I think that's what happens with Stu is they interpret it that one of them is going to die when really it's one of them is going to be spared. And what looks like the end for Stu in breaking his leg and getting pneumonia is actually him being spared and allowed to survive. Mm -hmm. But I think he does need to take his own stand along the mission with Tom. First he gets the sickness, but then the elements come in and they think they're going to be snowed in for the entire winter. And they make the decision to try to make it back. While he's traveling, there's some subtle things, but he keeps having the fear of what's going to happen to Fran's baby back at home. He's having dreams that it will actually be Flag reincarnated through Fran's baby. And he's terrified that if he can't get back, that's going to be a reality that might happen. Um, Or at the very least, that Fran might lose the baby. And so there's a whole sort of, I think, mental battle going on for him throughout that process. And sort of representing all of us, or maybe not all of us, but all of, because I think that was kind of the one of the big questions, right? Where... Were they going to be able to have kids and grow society or was that the end of it? So, I mean, my sense of reading through the book was that he was kind of representing everybody, everybody wondering that, because I'm sure just about everybody had to be wondering that. Well, and personally, I just I love these scenes that we get this little look with Stu and Tom where they are snowed in and. Stu figures out how to get the movie projector together and going so that Mm -hmm. they can watch movies in the hotel. And then when they set out with the snowmobile to try to go back, they wind up spending Christmas together on their journey. I don't know. We get so much more background here for Stu and Tom than I feel we've gotten throughout the entire book. And I love the bond of friendship that's forged between them. A lot of people feel like this is just sort of an afterthought. What is the point? Uh, you know, at this stage of the game because it doesn't have a lot to do with the end game, but they're some of my favorite sections. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that part of it too is when you look at the characters of where they are after everything happens in Vegas, Tom's story is unresolved. Stu's story is unresolved. And King pairing them together kind of gives them both what they need. Obviously, Stu needs someone to help him survive and just live through everything but tom lost nick and he needs not only some sort of closure with that but he also needs a new buddy that he had in the beginning of the book that he wouldn't be able to have now that nick is gone so yeah while it's a little hokey that nick may have came back in the dream like you guys were saying earlier king had already set that up through every other dream sequence that we had gotten through the book. So what it's not really that far-fetched that Nick can come back and say, hey, dude, this is what I need you to do. You know, I'm okay. I'm in a good place. You're going to be okay. You'll be fine. Go take care of Stu. Here's what you need. And so having that kind of push it was really what kind of was needed, I think, for, for both of the characters to get to the point. So yeah, you're right, Christina. It's, it's a great look into that relationship and developing of the relationship, but I totally disagree. It's definitely needed in the book. It's definitely needed at this point. It's not an afterthought. It's helping to wrap up these two characters that we've grown so accustomed to since the beginning. It helps kind of round out their story and end them on a good place. Well, and if you think about it, all the characters in the book throughout the book have been sort of pushed forward through these sort of supernatural dreams. 
So, you know, why should Tom be any different? You know, he has a dream that sort of guides him through his particular problem that he's in, you know, at that time. Yeah, I think that's what I was saying earlier, that it didn't seem any more hokey, I don't think, than any of the other, you know, dreams or sequences that sort of made, led people to their decisions, you know, in other parts of the book. Well, yeah, and it's, it's a criticism against King that I, I don't agree with. I don't think the fact yeah. that he sees Nick is strange. My, my problem has always been that it seems to highlight for Tom what he's unable to do. He's frustrated because he doesn't know what medicine he needs Nick in order to show him how to do that. And he keeps thinking he can't. But I think it's an incredibly important start to this whole thing with Stu is going to teach Tom for himself how important he is and that he'll get a sense of self-worth because it happens again when Tom forgets that it's Christmas. And it's really a heart-wrenching scene for me when he's upset when Stu surprises him that morning and he starts saying, I'm so stupid. Tom's so stupid. How could I forget it's Christmas? I didn't get you anything. And he's really beating himself up until Stu tells him, Tom, you already gave me my gift. You saved my life. It's the greatest gift you could ever give me. And I think Tom finally does come to that realization. And the whole journey for me is just highlighting what's good about humanity, why they fought so hard to go up against flag, what they do still have, and why these people have this goodness in them that allowed them to keep going. So this ends with Stu and Tom making it back to Boulder. Stu is reunited with Franny, and the baby does survive. They learn that humanity will continue. By the very end, the two decide to, in fact, return to Maine, thinking that the zone doesn't need them anymore, and they are worried that, in fact, they are starting up the old ways again in Boulder, and they need to distance themselves a little bit. Plus, Franny is homesick. So they know the risks, but they decide that they are going to try anyway. And the original edition of the novel ends with the two of them questioning whether the human race can ever learn from its mistake. The answer given is ambiguous, with Franny saying, I don't know. That's where it ends before the coda that's given in the extended version. The coda, called The Circle Closes, leaves a bit of a darker impression and fits in with King's ongoing Wheel of Ka theme, where Randall Flagg, using the alias Russell Faraday, arrives on a beach where a group of fearful people fall to their knees to worship him. And the last sentence says, life was such a wheel that no man could stand upon it for long. And it always, at the end, came round to the same place again. So I guess thoughts on both endings of these. First with Stu and Fran setting out on their own, deciding to leave Boulder and go back to Maine. How do we feel about that section of it? Well, I think we talked about this two episodes ago of where it makes sense for Franny to want to go back because that's what she's used to. And stands, he's just the kind of guy that he's used to helping everybody out and doesn't have a real kind of home. So it makes sense. You can also tell that Stephen King, uh, when he ended it there around humanity, is injecting a lot of his personal take and his viewpoint on life of answering the question, what would happen with society if everyone went through this? What, what is Stephen King's opinion on it? For the coda, I think it's interesting because it shows that even though we had just said the circle closes, you know, it never actually really does. It's more like a loop or a continuation. Whenever you read a book, you want to make sure that the characters that you love and enjoy in end the story in a place that's right for them. 
but you also know that there's life continues. It doesn't just stop at the end of a story that there's some continuation. I think also the answer to Stephen King's question that, you know, how would Hermandy survive? It's that it's, we might not really have learned anything going through the book or going through the stand and going through the story and that we will just succumb to the same things over and over again. And it's a vicious circle that no matter where it starts, and this is probably what he means by the circle closes is that no matter where you start on it, you're going to come back to the same place in one way, shape or form. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, and I've been around for a little bit longer than you guys, but I've sure seen that over the time. Man keeps trying to kill himself, you know, to, to destroy himself, whether it's through, um, you know, DD, through pesticides, whether it's through climate change, whether it's through nuclear energy, you know, it's like we're hell bent on sort of destroying ourselves. We haven't quite got there yet, but I'm not sure that we <laughs> that we won't get there. I mean, man's been on the planet. Let's get a little bit out of out of the the chain of the book, but. Um, maybe not, though, because man's been on the planet a relatively short period of time. And he may not be. The planet's going to keep going. You know, it's not like the planet's going to go away. It's just mankind's going to go away. But I think Stephen King's got a point. And Stephen King's probably been around, what, is he about 70, 75? Somewhere in that range. So he's probably been around to see tobacco, pesticides. You know, let's see what we can do to destroy ourselves next. So, yeah, it kind of makes sense to me, too, that King would weave that story into his book. I guess a question that comes up for me surrounding this, because we see the ending first with Stu and Fran, already thinking they have to leave Boulder because it's starting back up again and they're unable to stop the momentum of enough people getting together, enough people rebuilding, even though they are essentially good, there's problems that they already see with that society and they feel the need to separate themselves is the reason Randall Flagg comes back because we haven't learned? Is that why the circle is repeating itself and why we're going to have to fight all over again at some point because we haven't learned? I kind of get that sense. The way it seems to me is that story ended and it was the first battle of what's an ongoing war in humanity. So the story of the people of Boulder versus Las Vegas, that was a win the good but as long as humanity is the fight between the good and evil will just continue yeah because i couldn't figure out if it's just that flag is an eternal force and he'll always come back after a certain period of time or if we actually have something to do with it if it's because we're not learning we're not changing and so you'll get this sort of battle you need to fight until you get it right kind of thing. But I think that King does a good job with all these things and that he does leave a lot of that up to your own imagining and what, what line you want to put on it. It just, it was a little dark for me to have both of those right on top of each other. That you're just like off these great feelings and this great win, then bam, bam, the closing chapter mm-hmm. and the coda and life sucks. <laughs> it was sort of a the, hard the way circle, to... Uh, the circle closes. Yeah. Back around the other thing of this. Uh, other. Yeah, I mean, one of the points that, this is kind of a nuanced point, but one of the points that I kind of hesitate bringing up, but it seems like that... Um, you know, yes, this is, this is sort of a battle between good and evil, but it's a battle between Christian good and evil. So what do I mean by that? So so it's not, I mean, every religion doesn't believe in, you know, there's a heaven and there's a hell. I mean, Hindus believe in reincarnation and Buddhist thing. 
So we all sort of think that the world has the same vision of heaven and hell, but it's, it's because we kind of grew up in a Christian nation for the most part. But also, you know, the original story about the Garden of Eden and and there's this fallen angel, you know, from from God that turns out to be either a devil or he's a serpent in the in the garden in the Garden of Eden. And so we've always got these two sides, you know. It's like God says, "Don't bite that apple," and then the serpent comes around and goes, "Wouldn't it be kind of cool to bite that apple?" I mean, you know, throughout Christian the Christian version of this, there there has been those two forces. You know, there's been the good and the, and the evil. And the evil isn't necessarily, like, I think in the Christian version, the evil is more, you know, might makes right sort of evil. And the good is more, if you think about it, it's more good of principles and endurance. I mean, everything from, you know, David and Goliath, you know, the, the little tiny weak guy outsmarts the big strong, you know, might makes right guy. And if you look at sort of this story, even Christ's story of it's sort of the evil people that put him on the cross. And he didn't defeat those people by getting stronger than them and defeating them. He, he defeated them through his ideas, through his endurance. And so, you know, if you look at it that way, Stephen King's version here is very Christian version of, of um, good versus evil. And it makes sense that you're always going to have those two, I guess, diametrically opposed, whether it's heaven and hell or you know God and versus the serpent, or however you want to look at it, there's got always a, you always have those two forces. It's a little contradictory to me because as you're reading it, I thought the whole point they were gonna package this up beautifully. You had the two pregnant women, right? One was going to be uh, the continuation of good in humanity, and the other evil. And Dean kills herself and effectively puts an end to Flag's seed and the. Uh, the rebirth of evil and you're like yay the, the good win <laughs> the good win <laughs> and <laughs> then at the very end they're like no and I don't I don't like that they left Boulder and they went back to Maine I'm not really sure what the point of that is the two of them started and built this community and they were really leaders of that community and then they were just you know out and it seems as if they're saying that the cycle continues, that no matter what community they move to and find themselves in, it's uh, inevitably going to end up the same way. And worse than that to me is you kind of understand why they want to separate themselves, that they're seeing this stuff start up again, and maybe we need to keep the group smaller or do something different, uh, you know, start up a newer community and try to separate as long as we can. But there's also sort of a sense of, do they, are they giving up on it then? Do they not believe that they could stay and maybe try to make this society a little different that they worked so hard for? Instead, they're just going to bounce out on them. Like I couldn't help but feeling a little bit of that. Yeah, but Christina, couldn't it be just a version of Manifest Destiny? You know, it's like, when we started, just take the United States, you know, we started on the East Coast and then we had people moving to the Midwest and they moved a little bit farther and then they moved a little bit farther. And it was just more the distribution of, you know, communities and that way of thinking than it was giving up on, you know, giving up on them in the first place. I mean, to me, it was a positive sign like, oh, they're going to start a community, a good community in Maine and they're going to have a good community in Colorado and Maybe some people in Colorado will move to Wisconsin, and then they'll say, let's get the hell out of this state. They'll move to California where it's nice. <laughs> or Jersey. <laughs> no, but I, and that's what I said in the, in the 2020 talks, that if they had maybe taken some people with them, 
um, that they do love and they're just leaving them behind in Boulder and said, we are going to try to do that. Maybe we should separate a bit and do smaller communities, but it's just the two of them and their baby. And you're thinking, gosh, this feels really foolish. Like, how are they ever going to survive on their own? Is it really a community with just them and their kids? And in fact, they say that they know at some point they'll have to return to Boulder if just so their kids can socialize and meet others. And so it feels more like an escape than necessarily they're going to Maine to start a new community. It's just kind of like... Yeah, maybe maybe Tom will move out and meet him and maybe he'll find a girlfriend along the way and they'll have more babies and Maine, then it'll spread into New Hampshire and Vermont. I'd like to propose a different viewpoint. Okay. I, I initially read Stu and Franny moving back to Maine as a hey guys, we help you set up everything in Boulder. It's pretty good. You guys got it. We need to go take some time for ourselves. And they couldn't necessarily do that in Boulder. So they handed off the project, if you will, of setting society back up to the people that were more willing or able to do so from a mental perspective. So then Franny and Stu needed to go and take care of themselves and focus on themselves once the baby's born and set up their life before they reinsert themselves back into the committee and set up the PTA and all that kind of good fun stuff that you have to do when you set up society. So I, I totally got it. I got their desire to leave and wanted to go back. Was it the right time or was it the right one? Because there's probably no one else between Boulder and Maine. No, don't agree with that. But I do get the need for them to want to take a break and step back a little bit and, and work on themselves. Gosh, you guys, it must be because I'm from, I'm a West Coast boy. I kind of have the idea. I don't think people moved out. To, well, maybe some did, but just in the big picture, people didn't move out to the West Coast and then move back to Massachusetts. They moved out to the West Coast and stayed in the West Coast. I think you talked to my great, 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 great grandfather. <laughs> well, I, you know, Brian, if that was the case, I would totally understand, and I'd actually be okay with that ending. What bothers me, and the reason I get a different read on it, is what ultimately pushes them to leave is they're sitting around reflecting about how things are going in Boulder now. And Stu is saying when they left, they knew everybody's name, and since then so many people have come in, they don't even know each other anymore people are actually lobbying for positions within the committee and the government, and it's starting to feel more like politics. And in fact, they are arming the police force, which he thinks is going to be the first step towards the end of if they don't know their citizens well enough to try to enforce order without that, it's an issue. And the police having guns is going to lead to then the criminals having some kind of weapon to get over on them. They're seeing seeds of badness that all of a sudden have happened so quickly that I don't think they're leaving thinking the society's fine, they can handle it. I think they're leaving thinking it's the beginning of bad things already. And that that's, to me, what makes it feel a, a bit bleak. Yeah, you're right. I missed that. Jay, feel free to cut all this out because I'm wrong. <laughs> no, I would, I would love it if I could feel a positive alternative like that. I, I wanted to cop onto that. And then the 2020... So their deal of trying to make it positive is they're going to go repopulate. And Freddie's just going to have like dozens of babies on her own in Maine. Yeah, oh, that's what I'm voting for. <laughs> Brian, spoken like a true husband. That's all I can say. <laughs> Thanks, Kurt. <laughs> 
Um, last conversation, throw it away. I'm wrong. Now can we? <laughs> no, I I would love to be wrong about that. I really would. I don't I don't like the way that ends at all. Uh, I say it's manifest destiny, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> hey, where does Kojak wind up? Do we know in the books? That's a good question. No, he made it back to town to Boulder, right? And then we don't know who got him. Who, who Probably Tom ends up with him, right? Tom should get him. So that wraps up our plot. We do have more we want to talk about. But before we get to our final segments, let's go to our ratings. We're going to rate book three on a scale of one to ten dreams and give our MVS for this book as well. As a refresher, Brian, for book one, you gave it an eight, nine and book two, a nine, one. So when I went into this, I admittedly ranked the first two books a little bit lower, hoping that if memory served correctly, I'd like the book three a lot better. So I wanted to give myself some room. <laughs> um, but I, I seem to remember, I seem to not either my memory's going bad, which is horrible because I'm not that old yet. Um, or I misremembered how much I liked it. I didn't like it as much as I thought I was going to. So, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna change my previous rankings. So I'll keep them in par. I would say, Book three for me probably falls in the 9.4 range. I like that we get a lot of character development that makes sense based on the path that they were started on. Because sometimes books, they're like, oh, this person, this character is going down this path. And then in the third act, they take a drastic turn left into left field. And then you go, where did that come from? There's also a lot of points that Stephen King brings up that makes me really like to think about things. Um, so my philosophy minor brain really kind of got into that and really it's like, oh, what, what would happen? And just also the, the questioning at the end of what's next and what does this mean and, and closing the circle really kind of does it for me. So I thought it was a really good, really good act three. So yeah, nine, four. Great. So now on to you, Kirk, for book one, you gave it a 9.5 and book two, a 9.3. Book well, I'm happy to see that Brian finally came to his senses and agrees with me on a scale. So I also gave it a 9.4. Overall, I sort of liked it. It was just a nudge this direction or the other direction for me. Okay. And Michelle, book one, you gave a 9.5. Book two, an 8.8. How about book three? I dropped two down way lower because I'm, <clears throat> I'm with Brian. I, uh, I guess didn't remember clearly enough until we got to the end and all the questions it brought up, I would go uh, 9.3. Okay. So for book one, I gave it a 9.6. For book two, a nine. And for book three, I am also going to go a 9.3. Book one is definitely my favorite for all the reasons I have said. Uh, Two takes a dip because of some of that lag and confusion. I am overall happy with book three. There are some satisfying conclusions and some character stuff I really enjoy. It's just the very end and the overall tone that, as I mentioned, is a little hard for me to get on board with. But averaging out our scores, actually that for a total puts Kirk at a 9.4, Brian at a 9.1, Michelle at a 9.2, and me at a 9.3. So wow, they're all pretty close and really high scores. Hey, we should form a book club and talk about this. Oh, wait. We did that. <laughs> What's our next book, guys? That's <laughs> a good question. I bought Duma Key. Ooh. I don't know. I just, I have to say, I just, for the first time, read my first Bachman book. Oh. 
So I don't know if Michelle and Kirk, you're familiar, but for a brief time, King wrote under the alias of Bachman until he was discovered, would have liked to have written more books, but people figured out that it was King. So there's only four books published under that name, and they are supposedly, now I've only read one, much darker. I read The Long Walk. Mm. Whoa. Whoa, I don't know what else to say, but I would love to process that at some point. (laughs) What I really like about King's work as Richard Bachman is that he revisited one of the character groups. So he wrote a book called The Regulators Mm. as Richard Richard Bachman. Um, Very similar themes to what you kind of see in The Stand, only, like Christina said, much darker. And then he went back to the same setting and the same characters as Stephen King and wrote the book Desperation. Hmm. Which I've tried a couple times and can't get into Desperation. Try, read The Regulators. Okay. And then see if uh, Desperation makes more sense. Because I was able to get them, when Desperation came out, they reproduced or republished uh, The Regulators. And they have a cover that goes together between Mm. the two books. So I was like, oh, I like Stephen King. Let me get this one. It's like, oh, here's Bachman. Let me, I'll just get them both. (laughs) My parents got them both for me. And I read them and it's an interesting juxtaposition between the two for the the same set of characters, but in both stories. So I start with, start with regulators. I think you'll like it and then go to desperation. Well, (laughs) we'll do. And as dark as it is, I would recommend The Long Walk. And it's the kind of book that begs for a podcast because there's so much going on there is very interesting. But I digress. Let's get to our MBS for this book. So Brian, we'll start off with you for book one, you had Stu and book two, The Kid. Who do you give it to for book three? I'm going to go back to, because Stu's obviously in in the Boulder camp and the kid's obviously on the bad side of everything. I'm going to go back to the Boulder camp. And this probably is not going to be a shock. And I hopefully I'm not the only one that's here with this, but I'm going to go with Tom as my most valuable uh, person this time around. I really like how King wrapped up his story, like I was saying earlier with Nick, and then also progressed it on to Stu. I think that's great for Tom's character. And we would not have been able to get the ending that we had with Stu and Franny if Tom wasn't there. So Tom gets my vote. Excellent. Well, Kirk, for book one, you gave it to Larry. Book two, Trash Can Man. Who do you (laughs) give it your MBS for book three? Well, hang on. So I narrowed it down to Tom, like Brian, Kojak. Hey, come on. Kojak's got to win something here. Mm -hmm. And Trash Can, believe it or not. So here's my thinking went like this. Both Tom and Kojak, they saved Stu, which greatly aided Boulder, kind of enabled Boulder to sort of keep going or go on at a, at a better pace. But, here's a big but, Trashcan actually destroyed Vegas and completely saved Boulder. So I ended up giving it to Trashcan again, believe it or not, in terms of like the guy who had the most impact on the overall story. Mm-hmm. That's where I came down. Great. Now, Michelle, you gave it to Flag for book one and Tom for book two. Who do you give it to for book three? Oh, I hate doing these. <laughs> so, of course, I'd love to give it to Tom, but I, t- I don't want to give it to him again. Part of me wanted to give it to Larry for his sacrifice. But another part of me was thinking Nadine, because as far as making a stand, I think that was uh, one of the most influential ones. And I, I have a hard time doing it because you don't like her. She's not a likable character, but 
I think I'll, I'll give it to Nadine. Well, I'll probably be the most controversial. I gave it to Larry for book one, Nick for book two. As much as I don't like this, by the very end, I feel like Flag wins. Flag comes back in the coda. (laughs) The circle never finishes. And I don't know. I think if you talk about impact, Flag has the last word on the entire series. So I, I hate that, but I think I have to give it to him. So, go. listeners, thank you for joining us for our stand book <laughs> That's review. That's my hot take. If you're looking for something new, <laughs> we're gonna have a new we'll host. see you next time. We'll have a new host co- co-host for you next time. <laughs> well, also, I gave it to the, the Boulder group the first two, so I feel like uh, at some point I had to give it to this group, right? No, it's fair. And honestly, Christina, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. Because like how we talked about earlier, that the circle never really closes and history is destined to repeat itself and man is destined just to annihilate themselves from the planet <laughs> all those things all those so, things it I, makes sense but so christina are we going to have overall yeah so overall mvs i, I was yeah i was going to say so flag um, also winds up continuing on through other king books and really being a stable antagonist um so for that reason you, you could give it to him for the whole thing but let's uh, let's break it down, Brian, for the whole book. Who is your MBS? For as much as I just gave you crap for <laughs> Flag, I kind of have to give it to Flag for the whole book. Mm-hmm. Honestly, there's no one else that really that King has used in so many different facets and future, and this really kind of sets him up for those. So in the King verse, if you will, um, he's pretty powerful, and he he's one of the few that survives that we know, and we've scene from page one or so i got i gotta go flag for the whole book <laughs> christina's redeemed <laughs> <laughs> how about you kirk so first i looked at tom you know but then i thought well he's only in books two and three really and then you know it's weird you guys may think this is really strange but i can run to seeing tom is almost like hodor in game of thrones hmm. you know that he I was like a great, that a great great character he was at the hero at the end but he really didn't move the story one way or another. Mm. I mean, you know, he was a good character we loved all the way through. And he took a heroic stand at the very end. And then we moved on with the story, you know, independent of that. Um, Nick, I saw him. I mean, I know everybody liked him, but I saw him only in book one and two. And I think that I saw him as sympathetic and likable. But it was hard for me to vote for him because he didn't appear in all three books. You know, so he was only there for two thirds of the books. Larry, he was in all three books. Probably had the most satisfying arc, most complete arc, but didn't really have much impact on the overall story. Mm. Um, Stu, again, you know, he was in all three books, strong, heroic character throughout. He was kind of the glue, but I sort of thought like if Stu wasn't there, would the story be any different? You know, if you really, when I really thought hard about it, I thought, you know, there might be somebody else who'd step up here and there and sort of be the glue for this particular book and maybe the glue for that. Um, but I didn't see him as really integral to the whole book. Trash can, again, you know, all three books, sympathetic, colorful backstory, move the story a whole hell of a lot. I voted for him twice out of both bookend. Um, but in the end, for all the stuff we talked about, I gave it the flag. Hmm. <laughs> we had two flags. Ah, see, so my point was disputed, but... Your, was taken, your point was taken. Let's we just didn't like we didn't like him for the third book. Okay, you know. gotcha. Well, Michelle, who do you give it to for the whole book? I give it to Larry. 
Mm. I love Larry. He yeah. was so human and in the cheesiest way possible, seeming like the underdog turned hero in the end. The character development, his sacrifice at the end of the book, I just, he deserves a lot of credit. He was a great character. Don't think the story would have been the same without him. I, I definitely agree with that. And several times I have yeah. said, I think he has the most complete arc. Exactly, yeah. His start to finish. Oh, I'm so torn here because I, I did give it to him for book one, though, and I, I haven't given anything to Stu. And I, I also do kind of feel like he is, he doesn't have as good of an arc because there's not really a lot of struggle. But because it ends so dark for me, he is still the one character I can connect with and relate to and feel good about start to finish. Um, I do love the stuff with Tom and book three with him. I love how we opened up with him from the CDC and all of the Captain Trip stuff. He gives me hope for the future of humanity. So I think for that reason alone, I, I have to give it to Stu overall. It boiled down to me like this. No flag, no story. I don't know if there's any other character you can say that about. Even I, Stu. I feel that about Stu because he is so ever-present throughout the entire thing, from, from the very beginning of the outbreak to the very end with Franny, and he touches so many other characters throughout the course of it. I don't I really, I, so, I really agree with you, and I really struggled on that. But So answer this question. No Stu, no story? Yeah. Maybe? Or a very different story, at least. Let's put it that way. And I don't think a lot of people would have been able to resonate with the book. Without Stu. Without Stu. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, they would have given up on it if it was all flag. It feels it feels too dark. Maybe that's a Bachman book. <laughs> yeah, that would have been a Bachman book. Now yeah. <laughs> it's weird for me because Stu is our, your main protagonist, but in comparison to the dynamics of all the other characters, he falls flat for me in the end. Mm. Yeah, I know you have a hard time connecting with him i mean how do you feel about franny in the end is it the same way because she doesn't have like a tremendous arc either yeah yeah i want to see development i want to see change it's the end of the world well one last question about ratings and that is if you had to pick book 94 version or 2020 version what is your favorite brian goes first (laughs) (laughs) yeah i know i know um (laughs) I have to rule out the 94 version. Ooh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for, for a couple of reasons, most of which we've already mentioned before. Um, I, I think it was a decent adaptation, but there was stuff that was lacking for me in the, let's be real, the CGI was kind of hokey. <laughs> and I kind of alluded to this at the end of last, the last podcast is that I don't think the 2020 version was that bad, honestly. I know that there wasn't a lot of character development, but outside of the ending, which also was kind of a little hokey in Vegas, mm-hmm. and um, we're, you know maybe we're just used to having everything built up so high, and then um, the ending sucked. <clears throat> Game of Thrones, <clears throat> you know, read, read, or read listening to the book and going through this, twenty twenty really actually hit on a lot of the major places and story arcs and story beats, excuse me, that I didn't feel like there's that much missing outside of the character development. We know the character development wasn't great. And I think they told a fairly succinct story and a well-done story. Yeah, sure, they might have had, if they didn't try to go get big names, they might have had a little bit more time and a little bit more budget to do more, maybe a couple more episodes. 
So I don't think 2020 was as bad as it felt. I think the reason people felt, thought it was bad is because they, they missed the emotional story journey for characters and they um, some of the nostalgia from reading the book was really kind of what dampered it down. Um, so I think then it comes down to where's the book different? And there was just so much being dealt with the rebuilding of society and reading of the diaries. And I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I think I like 2020 better just slightly. Well, now we're going to fight, but <laughs> let me hear, wait, Lyle, let me hear what Kirk has to say first. Okay. Well, I almost agree with Brian, mm. but <laughs> in that I agree with a lot of the points that you made, because I think that, there's a certain podcast that I listened to that were a lot harder on 2020 than, than uh, I was. And it sounds like then Brian was also. Um, but I do agree that the last episode of the, the last episode of the 2020 was, I think, more harm than good. But to me, it's I, I think I got my sense is I was able to enjoy 2020 because I understood the backstory from somewhere else. And so from the book specifically. So I don't know if I didn't have the backstory on, you know, any of those characters, if the TV series would have little, rung a little bit more hollow than it did. For me, it was real easy. It was just because I enjoyed the book so much. And I didn't think I was going to. So that was even icing on the cake. So definitely the book for me. Well, this is not going to be a surprise to anyone. I always prefer <laughs> the books to anything else. But I have to say, it's it's maybe the one area where an adaptation comes really close. It's not often that it comes close or surpasses. There are a few examples where that happens. But I really enjoyed the 94. It's something that I can keep coming back to over and over because to me they did such a good job of bringing that to life. And probably because I am such a character-driven person when it comes to that. That's why I had trouble with the 2020. And I think as many things as the 94 did get wrong and struggled with as far as budget and time and whatever, uh, they really hit the essence of the characters for me, the essence of the journey. So it came close, but as usual, I do have to give it to the book. The book wins. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I just had to come back and defend myself from last episode. <laughs> you did good though, Brian. I thought it was good. After you read the book, it's hard to sort of like erase your memory and then come at it like a brand new TV show. And so... I just sort of gave credit to the book for having putting the memory there in the first place, I guess. It is it is really tough to do that. I find myself wanting to watch adaptations first now if I can and then read the book so that I'm not clouded by that. But I think it's a story that is so excellent for me that no matter how many adaptations they do, I'll watch. I'll enjoy them all, even if they're not my favorite. They can do the stand as many ways as they want to. Now, unfortunately, we had to lose Michelle. She had to hop off this conversation. I'm thinking she probably gave it to the book as well. She's very similar to me and kind of being a book purist when it comes to that stuff. But thankfully for you guys, I'm here. We lost Michelle, but we gained somebody else. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh -oh. Wait, did Jason read the book and just didn't hey. tell us? I know, Jason, you read the book last night. Good for you. I wrote the book. <laughs> That's why I couldn't be a part of this. We know you miss Jason and his jokes so much. He just couldn't stay away forever. No, Jason has not yet read the books, but we're going to hop into 
some more overall conversations about the stand, about Stephen King. So we're going to have you join us for these last couple of segments. Sounds good. So Jason, to welcome you into this conversation, something that you can talk with us about. I wanted to quickly point out the fact that in at least the extended paperback version, I'm not sure how many versions have this, we get illustrations throughout the book. Every so often there is a black and white drawing. I found out the artist is Bernie Wrightson, and you can actually purchase these now larger, but they do a lot. And I think maybe some of the imagery that I had in my mind from when I first read the book, because I had this version came from these. Um, they just give a little bit of visuals. Most of them I feel are great. The, the Franny one carrying her father is a little bizarre. <laughs> um, not at all the way I would have pictured, but Kirk, you had pointed out the one of trash can man is just, I mean, stunning. Yeah. Tra- trash can was great. I couldn't figure that one out really, but well, that's when he's, he's riding back and he's already got the radiation oh. sickness. So yeah, I thought that was cool. He's got sores everywhere. Wow. It looks like he's missing an eye. I didn't quite, I didn't quite picture him with those deltoids and um, trapezius, but, you know, hey, he'd been to the gym. <laughs> well, if you think about it, if your skin is melting away, so will your <laughs> fat, because that fat is flammable. Mm. That's right. This is a low-carb diet, low-carb, high-radiation diet. There's two others that I love, though. I love the one of Mother Abigail fighting off the weasels, which, when it's described in the book did feel very epic and scary to me and that illustration just sort of makes it so there it is and she's got the yeah. sack with her and i saw that when i couldn't figure out what the hell's going on but now i see that's for, uh, that's um abigail but also the one of the elements when Stu and tom are walking yeah they're much better and they How's... show they show the snow and the weather approaching it, it just looks the scale of it so huge and threatening. The one I really like too is the one in the jail cell. Oh yeah, where, with Lloyd. Oh yeah, with Lloyd, where you can just kind of see his desperation oh, in the yeah. face. You know, trying to Grab understand that for him to survive, he's got to eat that leg, but he doesn't want to, mm-hmm. and just kind of succumbing to the fact of like, yeah, I've got to do this, and it's not going to be pleasant, but it is what it is. And the cot, yes, cot exactly. leg that he's been using to try to pull it over closer to him. Look at the shadows of the jail bars. Interesting. And just black and white, but they do so much. This artist is really good at using that minimalism to portray it. Christina, you bring up the black and white. I think that works very well for this type of Yeah, novel. totally. Mm-hmm. So the ink drawings. It reminds me of The Walking Dead. Mm. The Walking Dead graphic novels. And there was, there was a comic series for this as well of The Stand, uh, different artists, different um, illustrations, but that is also out there. I want to finish this out. So we talked last time about some of our favorite books of all time and then recommendations to what you would read for, for King next. But Brian, what are your some of your other favorite Kings just for you as far as books are concerned? So I, like I mentioned earlier in the cast, I like Richard Bachman's um, The Regulators and then his accompanying book in Stephen King authorship, Desperation. Some of the other ones I like are Cell. I know the, the movie's not that great. Um, Duma Key's also good. Bag of Bones 
is really fun. It has a little more spiritual stuff. But Kurt, one I think that you would appreciate, because I think it goes back to the time that you're around, is from a Buick 8. Um, <laughs> it's a little bit spiritual or it's a little more sci-fi-ish, fancy, because there's a little time travel-ish type stuff. Not Not heavy. Not heavy at all. Those would be the top ones. From a Buick 8, I think, is probably a lighter, easier read. So if you need a little bit of a palate cleanser before you get into any of the other ones, that would probably be a good one as well. I'll put Duma next on my list, but I've got my list is so long. So on my books, I think I already mentioned that Lolita, believe it or not, is high on, on my list. And I, I think I explained why back then. Another one that's high on my book, and I read it in high school, kind of didn't think any bit more about it. Probably when I was in my mid-30s-ish, I read in somewhere in an article in Time magazine that Hemingway said, all of American literature starts and stops with Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. Hmm. So I went, like, I went like, what the fuck? That's a pretty good endorsement. So I went out, bought a book, bought the book, read it at, you know, as an older, like I said, somewhere in my 30s, I guess. I probably read it four or five times since then. It's just a um, remarkable story. It's got works on that third level, like I talked about earlier, that is sort of, you know, one of the underlying themes is racism. And the fact that um, Huckleberry Finn and the slave Jim, you know, go off on this, all these adventures together towards the end of the book, Huckleberry is saying like, well, I know I'm supposed to hate you. I'm not supposed to treat you like dirt, but you're my best friend. You saved me, you know, you saved my life all these times. And so it was kind of like Mark Twain start, you know, written in the 1850s, way before, you know, even the Civil War. It was starting to raise a different consciousness about slavery and about racism and all that stuff. Mm. So that was one of them. Well, East of Eden is definitely up there somewhere. I don't know exactly where. Mm -hmm. Mine are all the old school. Well, guys, those are okay books. But my top books, (laughs) Where's Waldo? Where's Waldo? Curious George. Mm-hmm. Which one, though? All of them. You're not, of them. You're not allowed <laughs> to say Dr. Seuss anymore, so you got to. You can't strike, say Dr. Seuss. <laughs> no, but uh, but for real, a book that made an impact on me when I was young, and I always wanted to read it again. And the only thing that stopped me is the difficulty of it because of the old school language. But Homer, the Odyssey. Oh, yeah, and one I've never read. It's really good. And which one? Christina? I said it's one I've never read, and you know oh, it's, yeah. it's a classic, but I just never did. I mean, I bought the Odyssey, bought the Iliad, and bought the Aeneid, and there they sit somewhere yeah. in my kid in my yep. Kindle somewhere. I've yeah. done the same with some real um, <clears throat> famous, you know, ones that you're supposed to read, and and my reading really spans a weird range. So I mentioned Roots last time, um, Lord of the Flies, but then I like just some ridiculous types of books. Um, anything Stephen King, obviously. Game of Thrones has to really rank on there. And a semi-recent <clears throat> kind of bizarre one I mentioned, I think last year, is called Planetfall, uh, which is a really hmm. um, cool, interesting, different type of written one. Plus, I like everything Ruth Ware, and I yeah. know that's cheesy, but... Percy Jackson. I just love Ruth Ware. Those Percy Jackson, yeah. Yeah. They're not as highbrow as, as what you guys have been talking about. Harry, Harry Potter. Potter. Harry Potter. Well, we've got to wrap it up. I mean, we've talked a long time on the stand. We could probably keep going for a long time more, but we had a great time doing this. Thank you all for coming on and joining me. Yeah, thank me. you guys a lot. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. 
we're doing a side project after this. And of course, we also have our main channels. We'll be coming back, Christine and myself, for a possible new channel, a new show format. New show? We'll give information on that. And then when our shows that we are covering come back, there's a lot of news coming up. So if you want to keep in touch and stay abreast of what's going on, follow us on Twitter at CKC Podcast, Facebook, Instagram, all there. And of course, as always, if you want more content from us, you can always sign up for our Patreon. It gives you more access to the CKC Podcast, and it also helps Christina and myself out. But coming out, Brian will be joining uh, myself and Lewis. We will be venturing off into the MCU while we cover the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And this should be great because, long story short, Brian wanted to do it. I told him I don't think we, Christine and myself, have time. And Brian kept coming back. I'll do the editing, he said. <laughs> I'll take care of all the, the legwork. And then he said, you don't have to be there every week. And I caved in because it is going to be fun. So that'll be our next venture. And it should be a learning experience for all of us because I'm, I'm used to always working with Christina and uh, diving headfirst into the MCU. That'd be great. We've already recorded our first episode and most likely is already out right now uh, by the time this airs. It's going to be interesting. As my wife says, it's a, it'll be a fun little project for <laughs> six, seven, eight weeks to see how it goes. And if it does well, Loki comes out later this year. So maybe yeah. we'll, we'll get into that. But that's obviously getting way ahead of myself. So I'm very excited. I appreciate the opportunity, you guys. This is going to be a lot of fun. So thank you. Well, it's an area that I have absolutely no experience in, but I know a lot of listeners are eager to hear about. So I'm glad that you guys have the opportunity to talk about that here. Well, so if you are here just on the Coffee Clutch Crew channel and you are not part of our Patreon crew yet, just know that we have some exciting stuff for regular CKC coming in the future. And then sometime after that, there will be more book reviews. There's a lot to come. Make sure that you stay tuned, subscribe. And if you like what you hear, give us a rate and review on iTunes. Thank you for joining us for the Stand Book Review. And until whenever the next episode is, you come see me anytime. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at CKC Podcast. And if you'd like to support Jason and Christina and would love even more content, including bonus casts and movie reviews, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash CKC Podcast. This round is on me. 